Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 256, Mutiny at Prospect Hill. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about the first soldiers to join our nation's revolution from outside New England. During the summer of 1775, when the Siege of Boston was at its peak, about 1,500 Pennsylvania riflemen answered a call for volunteers. By the time they reached the American lines in Cambridge, expectations for these troops were through the roof. Thanks in no small part to a publicity campaign engineered by John Adams, the New England officers commanding the troops around Boston believed that these fresh soldiers were capable of nearly anything. Their reputation was based in part on the riflemen's origins on the frontier, and in part on the advanced weaponry they carried. While they're the status quo for militaries around the world today, rifles were new to both armies that were facing off in Boston, and they were nearly unheard of here in New England. Unfortunately, fame went to these soldiers' heads, and after only a couple of months on the front line, they were nearly ungovernable. They refused to take part in the regular duties of an American soldier. They staged jailbreaks when their comrades were locked up for infractions against military discipline. And on September 10th, 1775, they staged the first mutiny in the New Continental Army. But before we talk about the Rifleman's Mutiny at Prospect Hill, it's time for a word from the sponsor of this week's podcast. Liberty & Co. sells unique products inspired by the American Revolution and many of them have themes tied to the historical events, locations, and people of Boston's past. Last month, I attended History Camp Boston, and Tyson from Liberty & Co. was there showing off some of their wares. I walked away having purchased a set of their stamp-act coasters. Both designs in the set are authentic 18th-century imagery that was used in stamp-act protests during the 1760s. One shows a skull and crossbones with the legend an emblem of the effects of the stamp. Oh, the fatal stamp. And the other one has the motto, No Stamp Act, in the center of a design that appeared on teapots that were popular in Boston and beyond. If you need something to put on those coasters, they also have a range of mugs, with designs for the Green Dragon Tavern, the Massachusetts Spy Join or Die design, and more. Of course, since December 1773, we've been filling those mugs with coffee, not tea. Right, Boston? You can get 20% off of any order and help support the show when you shop at libertyand.co and use the discount code HUBHISTORY at checkout. That's L-I-B-E-R-T-Y-A-N-D dot C-O and use the discount code HUBHISTORY. Now it's time for our main topic. Until the midsummer of 1775, the American Revolution was strictly a New England affair. After the Redcoats opened fire on Lexington Green one April morning, armed men started pouring into the area from all over the region. As the morning of April 19th unfolded, militia units converged on Concord, Lexington, and Monotomy, today's Arlington, from about 30 surrounding towns. From the moment they turned back from North Bridge, these citizen soldiers closely pursued and frequently surrounded the regular troops, causing heavy casualties. 
Pursued back to the Charlestown Ferry, the bloodied and exhausted British troops took refuge in occupied Boston, which, as we might possibly have mentioned before, was a small and easily defended peninsula at that time. Militia units from around New England streamed into Cambridge and Roxbury to keep the British regulars trapped in the peninsular town of Boston. Boston transformed itself from a tiny town on a peninsula to a sprawling city. It was a small, densely populated city on a tiny, mitten-shaped peninsula. The tiny Shawmut Peninsula that comprised Boston. Before Boston was expanded by filling the salt marshes that surrounded the Shawmut Peninsula, John Winthrop and his Puritan followers settled on the tiny peninsula they called Boston. Back when Boston was a tiny village on the Shawmut Peninsula, the only road leading off the peninsula of Boston. New England militias rushed to surround Boston and trap the British regulars within the peninsular town. By the time the sun rose the next morning, there were as many as 15,000 Massachusetts troops keeping the regulars penned up inside Boston. The Massachusetts soldiers were already reinforced by units from Connecticut and Rhode Island. And in the days that followed, regiments from New Hampshire and the eastern counties we now know as Maine would follow. Though it was a longer walk for them. The Americans at first were fairly loosely organized under Generals William Heath and Artemis Ward, with two main camps located in Roxbury and Cambridge. By blocking the land route out of Boston across the narrow neck that connected Boston to Roxbury, and the most convenient water route by cutting off Charlestown where the ferry landed, the American militias effectively trapped the British troops in Boston, where they could only be resupplied by sea. In the weeks that followed, there was a series of skirmishes on the Harbor Islands in May, where the Redcoats were seeking a source of livestock and hay that didn't have to be shipped across the Atlantic. These skirmishes only resulted in a tighter perimeter being drawn around the town of Boston, effectively cutting the British off from the Harbor Islands as well as the mainland. In an attempt to gain some breathing room, the British planned to occupy two strategic heights in Charlestown in June. Learning of this effort, the Americans countered by pushing their lines forward and fortifying Breed's Hill on the night of June 16, 1775. The next morning, British General Howe ordered a general assault to retake the heights, resulting in the Battle of Bunker Hill, one of the costliest engagements of the war where about a thousand British troops and officers were killed or wounded. Though the Americans lost the strategic heights, the British lost much of their offensive capability and the siege settled into a long stalemate, with the British on Bunker Hill and the Americans on Prospect Hill eyeing each other warily across a no-man's land in today's East Somerville. While the siege lines around Boston were solidifying in the spring of 1775, a parallel debate was playing out in the halls of the Second Continental Congress that was meeting in Philadelphia. The New England representatives argued that the war that had broken out around Boston was a war against all the colonies. Led by the Massachusetts delegation of John Adams, Robert Treat Payne, Sam Adams, and President John Hancock, this group argued that all the colonies should send troops to Cambridge and Roxbury to support the New Englanders. While the New Englanders wanted an aggressive martial stance, many delegates from the other colonies wanted to leave the door open to reconcile with the mother country. In a June 11, 1775 letter to Elbridge Gerry, who had joined the Massachusetts delegation in time to sign the Declaration of Independence, John Adams outlined the debate between the New England radicals and the middle colony moderates and the southern colony conservatives. 
I find that the general sense abroad is to prepare for a vigorous defensive war, but at the same time to keep open the door of reconciliation, to hold the sword in one hand and the olive branch in the other. I am myself as fond of reconciliation, if we could reasonably entertain hopes of it on a constitutional basis, as any man. We have ever found by experience that petitions, negotiation, everything which holds out to the people hopes of a reconciliation without bloodshed is greedily grasped at and relied on, and they cannot be persuaded to think that it's so necessary to prepare for war as it really is, hence our present scarcity of powder, etc. However, this continent is a vast, unwieldy machine. We cannot force events. We must suffer people to take their own way in many cases, when we think it leads wrong. Hoping, however, and believing that our liberty and felicity will be preserved in the end, though not in the speediest and surest manner. In my opinion, powder and artillery are the most efficacious, sure, and infallibly conciliatory measures we can adopt. Eventually, Adams and his allies prevailed. On June 14th, Congress voted to adopt the provincial army that already had the British trapped within Boston. They would be renamed the Continental Army and placed under the authority of the Continental Congress. In exchange, the Middle and Southern colonies that had been hesitant about sending support to New England would begin sending supplies and troops to support the new Continental Army. As a gesture of unity, John Adams nominated a Virginian to head up the new army, and his nomination was confirmed the day after the Continental Army was created. In a June 17th letter to Abigail about the business of Congress, John Adams revealed the news that George Washington had been chosen to command the new Continental Army before Boston. I can now inform you that the Congress have made the choice of the modest and virtuous, the amiable, generous, and brave George Washington to be the general of the American army, and that he is to repair as soon as possible to the camp before Boston. This appointment will have a great effect in cementing and securing the union of these colonies. The continent is really in earnest in defending the country. As part of the act creating the new Continental Army, Congress passed a resolution on June 14th ordering that six companies of expert riflemen be immediately raised in Pennsylvania, two in Maryland, and two in Virginia, that each company consist of a captain, three lieutenants, four sergeants, four corporals, a drummer or trumpeter, and 68 privates, that each company, as soon as completed, march and join the army near Boston to be there employed as light infantry under the command of the chief officer in that army. In this letter to Abigail, John Adams also reported on these ten companies of riflemen who would soon be marching to Boston. These would be the first troops from outside New England to join the fight, immediately embodying the other colonies' willingness to finally help Massachusetts in a real and meaningful way. Along with their symbolic value, they also brought specialized weapons and tactics, and a fearsome reputation. Adams wrote, They have voted ten companies of riflemen to be sent from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia to join the army before Boston. These are an excellent species of light infantry. They use a particular kind of, and here the manuscript is torn, but the word is probably musket or maybe firelock, called a rifle. 
It has circular grooves within the barrel and carries a ball with great exactness to great distances. They are the most accurate marksmen in the world. He echoed this enthusiasm for the rifleman's martial prowess in a letter to Elbridge Gary the next day, saying, The Congress has likewise resolved that 15,000 men shall be supported at the expense of the continent, 10,000 at Massachusetts, and 5,000 at New York, and that 10 companies of riflemen be sent immediately, six from Pennsylvania, two from Maryland, and two from Virginia consisting of 68 privates in each company, to join our army at Boston. These are said to be all exquisite marksmen, and by means of the excellence of their firelocks, as well as their skill in the use of them, to send sure destruction to great distances. Now, both John Adams' letter to Abigail and the Congressional Resolution ordering the riflemen to Boston refer to these ten companies as light infantry. This term doesn't refer to how big the riflemen were or how heavy their equipment was. Instead, it refers to their tactics. In the 18th century, most encounters between armies were planned as set-piece battles. Companies of regular infantry would march in close formation, form into ranks shoulder-to-shoulder facing the enemy, and fire massed musket volleys into the opposing lines before charging in with bayonets to finish the job. Light infantry, on the other hand, focused on maneuver warfare. Rather than closing ranks and slowly advancing on the enemy with overwhelming force, light infantry would disperse into loosely organized lines, use terrain features for cover, and move quickly across the landscape. You can think of them almost as the ranger battalions of their day, perfect for long-range patrols, scouting, and small-unit skirmishing tactics to establish and maintain contact with the enemy. These riflemen were also considered expert marksmen and employed as snipers. The peculiar kind of weapon they carried, as John Adams put it, gave them an advantage over soldiers armed with the more typical smoothbore muskets of the era. Writing for the Journal of the American Revolution, Joshua Shepard explains that the rifle, with its long grooved barrel, was almost unheard of among the troops who were already surrounding Boston. A rarity in New England, the rifle was far more prevalent in the backcountry of the southern colonies, largely due to the gunsmiths of Pennsylvania and Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. While most Continental regiments, as well as militia units, were armed with smoothbore muskets, the frontier newcomers came equipped with state-of-the-art 18th-century arms technology. The muskets carried by both provincial militia and British regulars during the Siege of Boston tended to be a fairly heavy caliber. They were quick enough to load that a trained soldier could fire two or three aimed shots in a minute, and they were easy to attach a bayonet to for hand-to-hand combat. The trade-off was accuracy. With their smooth barrel and loosely fitted ammunition, musket shots left the muzzle inaccurately and even the best marksmen would have a hard time hitting the same spot twice. Rifles, on the other hand, tended to fire smaller caliber rounds. They were very slow to load, quick to require cleaning, and required special training to handle. At this point in the war, rifles mostly couldn't be fitted with a bayonet, though a new type of bayonet would be specially developed for them later. The grooves cut into the rifle's barrel made it worth all these trade-offs, however. 
These grooves were cut or forged on the inside walls of the barrel in a sort of helical pattern. When it was rammed home, the musket ball fit tightly into these grooves, and when the gun was fired, the ball left the muzzle spinning in a tight spiral. The difference was night and day. Imagine what it looks like when a toddler throws a football, and then compare that to Tom Brady. There was about that much difference in accuracy also. A well-trained soldier might be able to hit a man-sized target with a musket at 100 yards, at least most of the time. The rifle was a game-changer in this regard. George Hanger was a hunter and a gun enthusiast, call him a gun nut, who wrote a book about hunting. He was also a British colonel who served mostly in the Southern Theater of the American War, and he had personal experience with facing American riflemen armed with these impressive new weapons. He wrote, I have often asked American riflemen what was the most they thought they could do with their rifle. They have replied that they thought they were generally sure of splitting a man's head at 200 yards, for so they termed their hitting the head. I have also asked several whether they could hit a man at 400 yards. They have replied certainly, or at least shoot very near him, by only aiming at the top of his head. I never in my life saw better rifles, or men who shot better, than those made in America. They're chiefly made in Lancaster, and two or three neighboring towns in that vicinity in Pennsylvania. The barrels weigh about 6 pounds, 2 or 3 ounces, and carry a ball no larger than 36 to a pound. At least I never saw one of a larger caliber, and I have seen many hundreds and hundreds. I'm not going to relate anything respecting the American War, but to mention one instance is a proof of the most excellent skill of an American rifleman. If any man show me an instance of better shooting, I will stand corrected. Colonel, now General Tarleton, and myself were standing a few yards out of a wood, observing the situation of a part of the enemy which we intended to attack. There was a rivulet in the enemy's front, and a mill on it, to which we stood directly with our horses' heads fronting, observing their motions. It was an absolute plain field between us and the mill, not so much as a single bush on it. Our orderly bugle stood behind us about three yards, but with his horse's side to our horse's tails. A rifleman passed over the mill dam, evidently observing two officers, and laid himself down on his belly, for in such positions they always lie to take a good shot at a long distance. He took a deliberate and cool shot at my friend, at me, and the buglehorn man. A rifle ball passed between him and me. Looking directly to the mill, I evidently observed the flash of the powder. I directly said to my friend, I think we'd better move, or we shall have two or three of these gentlemen shortly amusing themselves at our expense. The words were hardly out of my mouth when the buglehorn man behind us, and directly central, jumped off his horse and said, Sir, my horse is shot. The horse staggered, fell down, and died. He was shot directly behind the foreleg, near to the heart. Just the knowledge that not only were reinforcements coming from the other colonies, but they were sending these elite marksmen with their advanced weapons was an immediate morale boost among the Massachusetts and New England soldiers in the camps in Cambridge and Roxbury. In an article for the Mass Historical Society's Beehive blog, Thomas A. Ryder said, 
In the early stages of the Revolutionary War, no soldiers recruited in the American colonies generated a greater anticipation than the frontier riflemen. Armed with the Pennsylvania rifle, a weapon that in the hands of a skilled marksman was far more accurate than the smoothbore muskets most 18th century soldiers carried, and skilled in the Native American way of war, the riflemen seemed to promise a valuable augmentation to George Washington's nascent army besieging Boston. It is not an exaggeration to suggest that even before the Continental Congress authorized the creation of rifle companies from the Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia backcountries, that these soldiers took on a mythological status. As Ryder points out, part of the rifleman's mystique came from their reputation as frontiersmen from the fringes of European society. So it's important to point out that the frontier was a lot closer to home in 1775 than we usually imagine it. When most of us think of the frontier, we envision the rapid westward expansion of the mid to late 19th century. And we might have a mental image of the frontier as the Rocky Mountains, the High Plains, or perhaps a Red Rock Desert. Twenty years before the Revolution, at the outbreak of the Seven Years' War, or French and Indian War, the frontier started at Cumberland, Maryland, which is only about a two-hour drive from Washington, D.C. today. In Pennsylvania, what we now know as Pittsburgh was part of New France. And down in Virginia, the western border was hotly contested between the colonial government at Williamsburg and the French, Shawnee, and Iroquois nations. The end of the Seven Years' War saw the French cede all territorial claims in North America, and the frontier moved west. However, a royal proclamation in 1763 forbade English colonists from settling to the west of a line that was drawn roughly down the Allegheny Front. Everything to the west of Pittsburgh became part of the new British colony of Quebec. And between Pittsburgh and the proclamation line that was now a three-hour drive from D.C., an Indian reserve was set aside for the Iroquois, the Wyandotte, and the other indigenous nations that had been allied with Britain against France in the late war. The backwoodsmen, or frontiersmen, who volunteered for the rifle companies were mostly from families that had settled in the newly opened lands between the former frontier and the new proclamation line. No doubt some were line jumpers who had illegally settled on indigenous lands west of the line. And some, of course, were from the original territories of the three colonies they enlisted from. As the first units began to make the grueling march from the mid-Atlantic to New England in the full heat of summer, John Adams gushed to James Warren in a July 6th letter, Ten companies of expert riflemen have been ordered already from the three colonies of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. Some of them have marched under excellent officers. We are told by gentlemen here that these riflemen are men of property and family, some of them of independent fortunes, who go from the purest motives of patriotism and benevolence into this service. I hope they will have justice done them and respect shown them by our people of every rank and order. I hope also that our people will learn from them the use of that excellent weapon, a rifle-barreled gun. While everyone who knew that the riflemen were coming was excited for the prospect, few people did as much as John Adams to bolster their reputation and set high expectations for them. He was their most enthusiastic supporter, and he corresponded with so many people back home in the Boston area that his enthusiasm soon became contagious. 
In his article for the Journal of the American Revolution, Joshua Shepard noted, When the riflemen began arriving around Boston by the end of July, they achieved something of a celebrity status. They were the first troops from outside New England to reinforce the Continental Army, and their appearance constituted a much-needed show of tangible support from the southern colonies. James Thatcher, a medical doctor from Barnstable who served throughout the war as a surgeon in the Massachusetts 16th Regiment, kept a journal of his military service. In his entry for August 1775, he recalls the arrival of the riflemen a few weeks earlier. Several companies of riflemen, amounting, it is said, to more than 1,400 men, have arrived here from Pennsylvania and Maryland, a distance of from 500 to 700 miles. They are remarkably stout and hardy men, many of them exceeding six feet in height. They are dressed in white frocks or rifle shirts and round hats. These men are remarkable for the accuracy of their aim, striking a mark with great certainty at 200 yards distance. At a review, a company of them, while on a quick advance, fired their balls into objects of 7 inches diameter at the distance of 250 yards. They are now stationed on our lines, and their shot have frequently proved fatal to British officers and soldiers who expose themselves to view, even at more than double the distance of common musket shot. Despite the high expectations set by John Adams and others, the initial performance of the riflemen was mixed at best. As the first summer of war dragged on, there were a series of small engagements along the siege lines. At the end of July, just a few days after the first rifle companies arrived, a company from York County was ordered into action. Ironically, from the record I'm looking at, I can't be sure whether these were Pennsylvania or Virginia troops, because there were York counties in both colonies. On the evening of July 28th, the riflemen were ordered to sneak into British-held Charlestown, surround the enemy's advanced guard, and take some prisoners who could be interrogated about recent changes to the British fortifications on Boston Neck. According to a letter from an officer at the American camp in Cambridge, the rifle company divided and executed their plan in the following manner. Captain Doddle, with 39 men, filed off to the right of Bunker's Hill, and creeping on their hands and knees, got into the rear of the enemy's sentries without being discovered. The other division, of 40 men under Lieutenant Miller, were equally successful in getting behind the sentries on the left, and were within a few yards of joining the division on the right when a party of regulars came down the hill to relieve their guard and crossed our riflemen under Captain Doddle as they were lying on the ground in Indian file. The regulars were within 20 yards of our riflemen before they saw them, and immediately fired. The riflemen returned the salute, killed several, and brought off two prisoners and their muskets, with the loss of Corporal Krauss, who is supposed to be killed, as he has not been heard of since the affair. So the riflemen almost managed to sneak up on the redcoats and get the drop on them without being detected. But not quite. About a month later, a detachment of a thousand Continentals were ordered to press the lines forward and take a small piece of high ground called Plowed Hill on August 26th. A few hundred riflemen were sent into action as a flanking party, but they were again largely ineffective though this doesn't seem to have dampened their fearsome reputation among the New England units. 
Perhaps because they were not expected to act as regular line troops in combat, the riflemen quickly got it into their heads that they also didn't need to undertake regular non-combat duties. They managed to get themselves excused from most of the day-to-day chores that keep an army occupied, especially fatigue duty, meaning the exhausting work of cutting firewood, digging trenches, and standing guard overnight. In a letter to a friend dated September 13th, Jesse Lukens, a gentleman volunteer in a Pennsylvania rifle company who J.L. Bell notes was the son of the Pennsylvania Surveyor General, described the effect this special treatment had on the attitudes of soldiers serving with him under Colonel William Thompson. Our camp is separate from all others, about a hundred yards. All our courts martial and duty was separate. We were excused from all working parties, camp guards, and camp duty. This indulgence, together with the remissness of discipline and care in our young officers, had rendered the men rather insolent for good soldiers. The reality of dealing with these insolent riflemen quickly eroded the high regard that they had built up thanks to John Adams' enthusiasm. In a letter to Adams about the state of the siege, James Warren complained, All seems to be in a tranquil state for a war. The greatest difficulty seems to be to govern our own soldiery. I may say the riflemen only, for I hear of no other. They are the most disorderly part of the army, if not alone so. In his book, The War Before Independence, 1775-1776, Derek W. Beck pulls no punches when discussing the insubordination that was bred by the special treatment these units received. The accuracy of the rifle also gave its wielder an air of cockiness. The riflemen's egos were further intensified by their exclusion from fatigue or work details, such as entrenching, a policy thought necessary to curry the favor and loyalty of these otherwise independent-minded backwoodsmen. True, on the occasional skirmishes along the Boston lines, riflemen came in handy, accurately picking off handfuls of British troops from afar but their privileged place in the army quickly made them insolent troublemakers, wholly unsuited for the disciplined army that Washington was forging. As a battalion of troublemakers, these riflemen also quickly became intolerant of discipline. If it wasn't bad enough that they were caught disobeying orders, drinking, and being absent from camp without permission, they also began interfering with attempts by their officers to punish the men who committed these infractions. Rifleman Lukens goes on to describe the pattern of escalating insubordination that his unit indulged in during the first week of September 1775. They, meaning his company, had twice before broke open our guardhouse and released their companions who were confined there for small crimes. And once, when an offender was brought to the post to be whipped, it was with the utmost difficulty they were kept from rescuing him in the presence of all their officers. They openly damned them, meaning the officers, and behaved with great insolence. However, the colonel was pleased to pardon the man, and all remained quiet. That quiet wouldn't last for long. After a popular sergeant was confined to the company guardhouse, rumors spread that the men of the company were again planning a jailbreak. General Nathaniel Green shared his concerns and preparations with George Washington, in a note on September 10th. The riflers seem very sulky, and I am informed threatened to rescue their mates tonight. 
but little is to be feared from them as the regiment are already at a moment's warning to turn out. And the guards very strong. Rifleman Jesse Lucan's September 13th letter goes on to describe the long stretches of boredom, punctuated by sudden action, that soldiers throughout history have experienced. He started with an account of the brief battle for Plowed Hill on August 26th, but noted that not much had happened since then, except a few false alarms which took us out of our beds into the trenches at midnight, and some other matters of no great moment. Until last Sunday. And I feel myself blush with shame and indignation for what I am forced to relate. Last Sunday, for Lukens, was September 10th, the same day that General Green warned Washington about another potential jailbreak by the riflemen. Lukens continues, On Sunday last, the adjutant having confined a sergeant for neglect of duty and murmuring, the men began again and threatened to take him out. The adjutant, being a man of spirit, seized the principal mutineer and put him in also, and coming to report the matter to the colonel, where we were all sitting after dinner, were alarmed with the huzzahing. Upon going out, found that they had broke open the guardhouse and taken the man out. In an article about this incident, J.L. Bell notes that the adjutant was Lieutenant David Ziegler, born in Heidelberg one of a number of German immigrants or sons of immigrants in the battalion's officer corps. The colonel and lieutenant colonel, with several of the officers and friends, seized the fellow from amongst them and ordered a guard to take him to Cambridge at the main guard, which was done without any violent opposition. But in about 20 minutes, 32 of Captain Ross's company with their loaded rifles swore by God they would go to the main guard and release the man or lose their life and set off as hard as they could run. It was in vain to attempt stopping them. We stayed in camp and kept the others quiet, sent word to General Washington. Now, pausing for a moment to interpret, after the privates broke their popular sergeant out of the Huskow, the senior officers of the Pennsylvania Battalion took custody of him again. In an attempt to keep the men from making another rescue, they sent the prisoner to the main guardhouse at the Continental Camp near Harvard Square, rather than trying to keep him locked up in their regimental camp on Prospect Hill. It didn't take long, however, before the soldiers armed themselves and went in pursuit of the sergeant. This was the event that General Green had warned about, and Lucan's letter described how Green, along with the rest of the senior generals of the Continental Army, personally responded to the mutiny. Generals Washington, Lee, and Green came immediately. Our 32 mutineers, who had gone about a half a mile towards Cambridge and taken possession of a hill and woods, beginning to be frighted at their proceedings, were not so hardened but upon the generals, meaning Washington's, ordering them to ground their arms, they did it immediately. In the War Before Independence, Derek W. Beck describes how the mutineers were quickly placed in custody. This was the army's first mutiny, and Washington, not to be bullied, was determined to teach these men the consequences of such insubordination. His Excellency ordered the main guard surrounded by some 500 troops, bayonets fixed, guns loaded. He also issued orders to Colonel Daniel Hitchcock's regiment and several other companies of Brigadier General Nathaniel Green's brigade, all near Prospect Hill to cut off the mutineers and subdue them with force if necessary. 
Washington and General Lee, joining Greene, then rode out toward Prospect Hill to intercept the mutineers personally. As if to restore some honor to the Wayward Rifle Battalion, Captain George Nagel's company of the same Pennsylvania Rifle Battalion then surrounded the mutineers. They arrested the six principal actors, binding the two ringleaders, and then marched all six off to the main guard to join their companion. The rest were sent back to their camp for discipline there. Lukens, the gentleman volunteer, was dismayed by the stain this event placed on his unit's honor and embarrassed that as the first troops to arrive from the southern colonies, they had let their fellow southerner, General Washington, down. I was glad to find our men were all true and ready to do their duty, except these 32 rascals. 26 were conveyed to the quarter guard on Prospect Hill, and six of the principals to the main guard. You cannot conceive what disgrace we are all in and how much the general is chagrined that only one regiment should come from the southward, and that set so infamous an example. In his article about the mutiny for the Journal of the American Revolution, Joshua Shepard writes, News of the mutiny spread fast. Benjamin Craft, a lieutenant in Mansfield's Massachusetts regiment, recorded in his diary on the evening of September 11th that a number of riflemen have been confined for mutiny and some of them sent to the main guard in irons. Not surprisingly, one of the Pennsylvania riflemen had a different perspective on the day's events. Aaron Wright cast blame for the trouble on Ziegler, writing that there had been a great commotion on Prospect Hill among the riflemen, caused by the unreasonable confinement of a sergeant by the adjutant of Thompson's regiment. George Washington had to move fast to quell the discontent and stay ahead of the rumors and complaints that were already spreading like wildfire. His general orders for the Continental Army for September 11th, the morning after the mutiny, immediately put an end to the special treatment his fellow Southerners had gotten used to, and it set the stage for a court-martial for the mutineers. Colonel Thompson's battalion of riflemen posted upon Prospect Hill to take their share of all duty— of guard and fatigue, with the brigade they encamp with. A general court-martial to sit as soon as possible to try the men of that regiment who are now prisoners in the main guard and at Prospect Hill, and accused of mutiny. The riflemen posted at Roxbury and toward Leachmere's Point are to do duty with the brigade they are posted with. James Warren, who'd heard so much advanced praise from John Adams in the weeks leading up to the riflemen's arrival in Boston, now wrote back to Adams on September 11th and burst the congressman's bubble. I have not been at headquarters since Saturday, but I'm told that for some crime, one of the riflemen was ordered under guard. An attempt was made by a number to rescue him, upon which they were also ordered to be put under guard upon which a whole company undertook to rescue them, and the general was obliged to call out a large detachment from the Rhode Island troops to apprehend them, who, though prepared for resistance, thought proper to submit, and the ringleaders are now in custody. I believe you will choose to make examples of them. I should, were I in his place. Ironically, General Washington was still dealing with the backlog of courts martial left over from the Battle of Bunker Hill, way back in June. 
So many accusations and counter-accusations of cowardice and dereliction of duty emerged from the confusion and chaos of that bloody battle that Washington had plenty of chances to make examples of both soldiers and officers. The general's orders from September 13th record that he took a different approach in the court-martial that was held for the riflemen the preceding day. The 33 riflemen of Colonel Thompson's battalion tried yesterday by a general court-martial, whereof Colonel Nixon was president, for disobedient and mutinous behavior, are each of them sentenced to pay the sum of 20 shillings, except John Lehman, who, over and above his fine, is to suffer six days' imprisonment. The paymaster of the regiment to stop the fine from each man out of their next month's pay, which must be paid to Dr. Church for use of the general hospital. Dr. Church was Bostonian Benjamin Church, who was acting as the first Surgeon General of the Continental Army. Ironically, this was just weeks before Church's secret correspondence with a British officer came to light, marking Church as the first known turncoat of the war. Perhaps if Washington had known then, he would have used the rifleman's fines for something else. Was the sentence of 20 shillings to repay Church for hospital costs an effective deterrent to future indiscretions? In the war before independence, Derek W. Beck called it a slap on the wrist. But Rifleman Lucan seemed optimistic that the shame of being publicly branded mutineers, along with the increased discipline imposed by taking a full share of fatigue duty, would inspire his comrades-in-arms to behave better. In order that idleness shall not be a further bane to us, the general orders on Monday were that Colonel Thompson's regiment shall be upon all parties of fatigue and do all other camp duty equal with any other regiment. The men have since been tried by a general court-martial and convicted of mutiny, and were only fined 20 shillings each for the use of the hospital. Too small a punishment for so base a crime, and mitigated no doubt on account of their having come so far to serve the cause, and its being their first crime. The men are returned to their camp, seem exceedingly sorrowful for their misbehavior, and promise amendment. This will, I hope, awaken the attention of our officers to their duty, for to their remissness I charge our whole disgrace. And the men being employed will yet no doubt do honor to their province, for this much I can say of them, that upon every alarm it was impossible for men to behave with more readiness or attend better to their duty. It is in the camp only that we cut a poor figure. Tomorrow morning, or sometime in the day, may perhaps restore our honor, if we behave in the day of battle as well as I hope we shall. A few days before the mutiny, General Washington, on September 5th, had ordered one company of riflemen from Virginia and two from Pennsylvania to prepare to join Benedict Arnold's overland expedition to Quebec. According to Derek Beck, the disgrace resulting from the riflemen's mutiny may have cost their company the opportunity of participating in this campaign. Days before this incident, Washington assigned two of Colonel Thompson's rifle companies to Benedict Arnold's expedition into Canada. It's unknown whether Captain Ross's mutinous company was intended to be among them, but if so, it was stripped of that honor. Instead, the two companies of Captains William Hendricks and Matthew Smith were given the responsibility of restoring glory to the battalion, and so assigned to Arnold's great expedition. Doubtless, some in the camp were eager to see fewer riflemen around after this incident. 
Of course, if the riflemen had known that Arnold's campaign would result in extreme starvation casualties, they might just have been glad to be excluded from the opportunity. Nonetheless, their reputation was more or less permanently tarnished. In a sign that the bloom was off the rose, George Washington griped about the performance of the riflemen in a letter to his brother Samuel on September 30th, saying, The riflemen have had very little opportunity of showing their skill, or their ignorance, for some of them, especially from Pennsylvania, know no more of a rifle than my horse, being new-imported Irish, many of whom have deserted to the enemy. That's a far cry from the reputation as the most accurate marksman in the world that greeted them when they first arrived in the camp at Cambridge just two months before. As the rifleman's first and most enthusiastic booster, John Adams certainly got an earful in the weeks following the mutiny. On October 24th, John Thomas wrote to him, complaining, There is in this camp, from the southward, a number called riflemen, who are as indifferent men as I ever served with. They're privates, mutinous, and often deserting to the enemy, unwilling for duty of any kind, exceedingly vicious, and I think the army here would be as well without as with them. General William Heath, who first organized the Siege of Boston before Artemis Ward took over, sent his own complaint to Adams on October 23rd, largely blaming the Irish and German emigrants and the rifle companies for their trouble. The riflemen, so much boasted of by many before their arrival, have been guilty of as many disorders as any corps in camp, and there has been more desertions to the enemy from them than from the whole army besides, perhaps double. But these were foreigners, and there is in that corps as faithful and brave officers and soldiers as any other. It would be ungenerous to characterize the troops of any colony from the conduct of a few scoundrels. For his part, General Artemis Ward was even less generous than Heath in his own letter to Adams on October 30th. They do not boast so much of the riflemen as heretofore. General Washington has said that he wished they had never come. General Lee has damned them and wished them all in Boston. General Gates has said, if any capital movement was about to be made, the riflemen must be moved from this camp. Billy Tudor, the father of Ice King Frederick Tudor, legal protege of John Adams, and subject of our episode 131, was by this time the judge advocate of the Continental Army. He was not impressed with the rifleman's performance in battle. In a letter to his mentor Adams, written in December 1775, just after one of many skirmishes around Leachmere's Point in Cambridge, Tudor says that the riflemen just aren't worth the trouble. The pompous display of riflemen's courage, which fill half the papers of the southward, is ridiculous. The affair at Leachmere's Point hardly deserved mentioning, and when read by Howe's officers, will make them laugh, at least. I will not by letter make any other observation on the subject. The Pennsylvania riflemen would have a chance to redeem themselves. Later organized as the 1st Pennsylvania Regiment of the Continental Line, they fought with honor through the New York and New Jersey Campaign, and later in the Philadelphia Campaign. Their mutiny at Prospect Hill was the first the Continental Army faced, but not the last. 
Later in the war, when morale among the troops ran as low as their stocks of food and ammunition, there were three major mutinies. First, the Connecticut Line staged a short-lived rebellion in May 1780 when they were forced to go hungry. Then the Pennsylvania Line staged a much larger rebellion starting on New Year's Day 1781. In that uprising, nearly the entire military of the state marched out of camp without orders, intending to go to Philadelphia to demand the food, supplies, and pay that they'd been promised, eventually forcing their officers to negotiate a peaceful settlement. The mutiny of the Pennsylvania Line inspired a similar mutiny among the New Jersey Line less than a month later, with several hundred troops starting on a march to Trenton to demand supplies. This time, two of the ringleaders were summarily executed by firing squad, bringing an end to the short-lived mutiny. Washington's officers had come a long way from the slap on the wrist they gave for the Prospect Hill mutiny. To learn more about the Rifleman's Mutiny at Prospect Hill, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 256. I'll have links to articles about the mutiny by Joshua Shepard in the Journal of the American Revolution, by Thomas Ryder on the Mass Historical Society's Beehive blog, and by J.L. Bell on his Boston 1775 blog. I owe a special thanks to Joshua Shepard because I used a lot of his framing and sources in creating this episode. I'll also have links to a ton of primary sources, including a lot of letters to and from John Adams, the hunting advice of British Colonel George Hanger, and the letter from Rifleman Jesse Lukens, along with a few acts of Congress and general orders from George Washington. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, but most active on Twitter. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many, many more. You can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. Or you can listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa play the Hub History Podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History Podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 